0: Due to the subject matter, we advise that children under the age of 12, or those of a sensitive nature, should turn off now. murder tales podcast each week i'm joined by the author of the murder tales series of books criminal historian h.n lloyd as we know him lloydy how you doing lloydy evening all i'm okay thank you very much how's the feedback been so far i've I've noticed that there's been quite a few people getting in contact on twitter
1: yeah uh people have been contacting me saying they're really enjoying the show a uh, few uh, suggestions for what we could cover in future episodes from people some people want to know about some little known cases from the areas where they live yeah so it's been going well uh one rather nice lady's contact me to say that rather uh, the podcast she started reading the books and that she's really enjoying them as well so it's all good
0: that's great as long as i'm going to get commission from that <laughs> <laughs> Right. In the last episode we left you on a bit of a cliffhanger where the man convicted of the murder of Leslie Molseat, Stefan Kitsko, had just been released after being incarcerated for a total of sixteen years. Tragically, Stefan died shortly after his release and so did his mother about who campaigned tirelessly for his release. Now we're in a situation where Leslie's family didn't know who was responsible for her murder and the sense of justice they'd achieved 16 years earlier was now a lie so we've got a lot of questions to answer in this episode and there's a long drawn out campaign to try and get justice
1: yeah basically when stefan was released the malseed family were left in a, a no man's land effectively they found themselves having to campaign to try and get justice for the daughter Laura Anderson, who was Leslie's sister, she struggled with um, trying to forgive Stefan, despite the fact he'd done nothing wrong. She said herself, I'd hated this man for so long, and to be told he hadn't done it, I just couldn't accept it. And Leslie's father, Fred Anderson, he echoed these sentiments when he said, I'd had 16 years living with Kisko killing my daughter, and it's still there. People would say, what the, that poor lad, and all that. I couldn't get that. You know, so you've got this sense of injustice in the family. Julie Anderson, uh, Leslie's other sister, said it started again. Lel, bless her cotton socks, had been murdered again. So the family's wounds had been opened and for nearly 15 years, there would be no justice and the case would be earmarked as an unsolved case. When I first started writing about the Leslie Mulseed case for the second murder tales book originally it was going to be in the first book as an unsolved case and it was only as we were getting that to press it broke that perpetrator had been arrested and I held back on it and it ended up being in the second case so it was a long drawn out experience for the mulseed family.
0: So as the family of the victim how do you build yourself back up again when you know that you're now having to search for the killer all over again?
1: Well the family basically Got themselves into a mindset that the murder would never be solved. In fact, they, April Garrett, who was Leslie's mother, went on record as saying she didn't think she'd see her daughter's killer brought to justice in her lifetime. But despite that, every weekend they would go out around the local area, the family would hand out flyers begging people for information. If they'd not seen something not come forward, please do so now. And they were doing that on their own back without the support of the police. It was only really until um, the mid 1990s that uh, chief superintendent max mclean spearheaded a a cold case review now during that cold case review he was told that there was the possibility that they could use dna evidence to solve the murder because obviously the killer had left semen stains at, at the scene
0: so all in all we're now back at the start aren't we yeah we've been waiting for two weeks and those who aren't familiar with the case, including me, i have had to wait that entire fortnight to find out who who was the killer of Leslie Morseed.
1: OK, well, let me tell you how we got there first. The police obviously hadn't kept any semen staining from the original murder. So how were they going to get the DNA? By sheer chance of luck, they'd kept pieces of tape that they'd used to get fabric from Leslie's clothes to test for fibers and on that tape they found the killer's DNA went into the national database and it didn't get any matches. So the killer wasn't in the system. We then have to wait until 2005. On the 1st of October in 2005 a 52 year old man from Crompton in Greater Manchester was arrested for the alleged rape of a sex worker. When that man was arrested His DNA was taken, purely routine, and even though those charges were never proceeded with, that man's DNA was put into the database. When a cold case review of Leslie's murder came up a year or two later, they finally got a match. The man was called Ronald Castry, and all along he'd been under the police's noses. His name was Ronald Castry, and he lived just three quarters of a mile away from Leslie.
0: So who was Ronald Castry? Because this is somebody we've not mentioned so far during the
1: case. Castry was a man who Superintendent Max McLean has described as a deviant who lived a very unhappy and very dark life. He was born on the 18th of October in 19... He was born on the 18th of October in 1953. One of the most interesting things, perhaps, if that's the right word, is that we know Ronald Castery's father was a paedophile. We know he was a paedophile because he abused Ronald Castery's children, and he also was convicted for molesting a child in a public toilet. Now, why I find that interesting is because, obviously, there is quite persuasive evidence that abused people can go on to be abusers themselves. It's a kind of perverse learned behavior. Statistically, you are more likely to abuse children if you have been abused yourself. You're about 35% more likely to, statistically, according to the latest research. Um, bizarrely enough as well, that's only male offenders. There's no correlation with, with female, uh, female victims of sexual abuse uh, going on to, to similarly offend. It seems to be a peculiarly Male learnt behaviour. Do we know um, why that is? No. That's the thing. There's been studies, most recently in America, trying to find out why, and they just can't seem to figure out why statistically you're more likely to go into abuse if you've been abused, and statistically why well, it's more likely men who go on to do that. They've said themselves it's a statistical anomaly that they can't quite figure out at the moment. So, I'll
0: see you saying a castry came and abused himself after being abused what makes somebody who's abused take that step to become a killer
1: i think with someone like castry you're looking at a man who was extremely angry anyway as a man with anger management problems we'll go on to later the fact that he was a man who for his entire life abused people he came into contact with and obviously again we've got that idea of perverse sexual relationships and whether that was learned in his case whether it's a controversial thing to say whether it's genetic we don't know but there is that thing that we we know even in in his home sexual life there was an element of, of, of wanting deviant role play, wanting his wife to dress up as a schoolgirl. Yeah. His wife refused to do this. So then he went out and he hired prostitutes who he paid to dress up as a schoolgirl for him. So all the way through his adult sexual life, Castries had this need to Make adult women more childlike and for him to get greater sexual pleasure by them pretending to be childlike.
0: Let's just go back to the DNA evidence. So, they pulled some DNA from semen stains, which were on these solid tape samples that they had taken. Though they had this evidence back in 1975 and 1976, why was this not tested to prove? Stephen Kitchko's innocence. You mentioned in the previous episode he had uh, hypogonadism, which means that he couldn't produce sperm heads.
1: Yeah, well, it's part of the whole almost conspiracy that was against Kisscum. Once he was in prison and he'd lost his initial appeal, that was it. The only way he could then really get out of prison was by admitting he was guilty, which he was never going to do because he wasn't guilty. So he's in this curious catch 22 situation. Nobody believes he's innocent. He can't get out unless he admits he's guilty. So no one tests the evidence again, simply because the, the person who's done it is in prison. So there's no need to retest that evidence.
0: And see, the only one who actually knew he was truly innocent was
1: Castry. Castry, Dick Holland and Ronald Outaway two of the two police officers and forensic scientists who'd repressed the evidence to proving his innocence. So from
0: Castries' point of view, then, if you know that somebody's been incarcerated for a murder that you committed, what would that do to your mind? Would it make you feel overly confident? Would it make you feel more paranoid?
1: In Castries' case, it's clearly made him more paranoid. His wife Beverly went on to say that in the years after Leslie's murder, he became increasingly more paranoid. He would wake up in the night convinced that there was people knocking on the door, and it's obviously in his mind that that would be the police. He became convinced people were spying on him. He also um, armed himself. Now, whether he would have used that in any way to defend himself if he'd been caught whilst with it, we don't know but that that again there's that interesting correlation between people who have sexual interest in children and also an interest in guns there is a a strange correlation there there are other cases uh like the dunblane massacre where the perpetrator of, of that horrendous offense had been accused of child sexual offenses and he also had a fascination with guns but i think with Castry, it's very interesting that even though he had had this fear of being caught, it didn't stop him from reoffending. Ronald Castry went on to twice more sexually offend against children. The f- second time was only months after Leslie. Again, the date was on the Turf Hill estate. It starts really from his family's perspective on the 3rd of July of 1976 when Ronald came home and said to his wife, you can divorce me now and she said what do you mean by that and he said i'm in trouble i've interfered with a young girl and effectively he approached two young girls in the street two nine-year-old children in the street and he told them that the mother had sent him to collect them now this was quite plausible castry was a taxi driver in the local area he was known in the local area to be driving this taxi so it could have been quite plausible one of the children didn't believe him and ran off the other child got into the car castri then drove this child to an abandoned house where he sexually abused her and forced her to perform sex acts upon him luckily the girl managed to escape and she told her mother what had happened straight away and castri was arrested within hours of the offence. You would have hoped that that would have, you know, meant that Castri would be sent to prison, would maybe receive help, if you can help a sex offender in, in that respect, or, or at least contain him and, and keep an eye on him. That didn't happen. He, in fact, received just a £25 fine, which in modern money would be £180. And this was quite a serious Sexual offence, and then two years later, in July of seventy-eight, he did it again. This time, assaulting a young boy, and again went to court, and he all he received was a fifty-pound fine.
0: From conversations we had off, uh, his wife didn't divorce him; she was still with him no. for for a number of years afterwards.
1: Yeah, Castry came from a very domineering and very interfering family, and when he was being arrested for these offences, his mother and father would basically berate Beverly uh, Castree and say to her he's ill he's not well he's had a breakdown you're putting too much pressure on him you've got to forgive him and she did she regretted forgiving him she um, constantly wanted to escape but she couldn't he was a quite serious domestic abuser Ronald Castree he was physically violent to his wife and his children he would beat his children in black and blue. He forced Beverly out of her employment so that she was dependent upon Ronald financially and also had no community support and no support from any friends or family. His son Nick Castry has said that he was an aggressive tyrant um, and uh, that, that they knew he was dangerous but they didn't believe he was he was so dangerous that he would kill somebody. He was also an incredibly intolerant man. One of his sons, Nick, is is actually gay and when ronald castry found out about that he completely flew off the handle and he subjected his son to the most appalling homophobic abuse and it led to, to nick castry being cut off from his family for quite a period uh,
0: nick Castri described his dad as having some sort of split personality because at home he was abusive and violent but in the general public who you see seen as quite a respectable businessman
1: mm-hmm. to a degree his neighbors hated him his neighbors thought he was violent and foul-mouthed and that he was likely to fly off the fly off the handle at any moment into, into some sort of sweary rage is that almost compartmentalizing your life between your private and your public life. So to a degree, his public life in business, he was one thing and he wanted to be respected and he wanted to be seen as legitimate. Behind the scenes and to a certain degree with his immediate neighbours, that didn't so matter. They knew who the real man was.
0: You mentioned earlier he was a taxi driver, but in the years after Leslie's murder and also the subsequent attacks on the young girl and the young boy, he then set up a business in Ashton Line, which is near Stockport, as a comic book dealer.
1: Yeah, he owned a comic book store called Arcadia Comics. I think it's incredibly interesting that he done this because it allows him to have daily contact with children. And one has to wonder whether he has done that deliberately. Obviously, nowadays, there would be things put in place immediately to stop that from happening. He would be monitored a lot more by the probation service, by MAPA proceedings. I've talked about MAPA in previous episodes, multi-agency public protection arrangements. So he would never be allowed to do that now. But for many years, he was a respected comic book dealer. He was interviewed in the national press about his comic book dealing and about the high esteem he held comic books in and the need for heroes, bizarrely enough, in, in modern days which is for a man who, who's had this terrible secret for so long and, and a history of, of sexual abuse to, to wax lyrical on, on why people have a need for heroes is, is quite um, telling of, of his personality and the need to, in a way, secretly mock the, his, his victims because some of the victims know what he's done. They've been to court. It's been proved. The Malteseed family didn't. But obviously he knows what he's done and he, he's got that power over the Molseed family and by giving interviews like that it hears him having a bit of a a sly personal winking nudge nudge joke to himself about his horrendous offenses
0: when uh, Cassidy was arrested the police read out the charges and his reply was you're joking was this down to his personal belief that he hadn't done anything wrong, or was it just trying to mask he had done?
1: I think a man like Kastri has basically persuaded himself that he hasn't done it. He's told the lie so often that I didn't do it. He now believes it. To this day, he is protesting his innocence. But how can you protest against
0: DNA evidence?
1: Well, exactly. He's going down the line of there might have been DNA contamination. The police are saying that there isn't. He's actually accused a man called Raymond Hewlett of being the murderer. Now, Raymond Hewlett is a man some true crimes might know. He's a notorious uh, sex offender and he's been linked to the disappearance of Madeleine McCann. Now, obviously, there's no evidence whatsoever that uh, Hewlett was connected in any way to the murder of Leslie Molsey The only person that there's evidence pointing uh, towards is Ronald Castry. Yeah, he would have it that DNA has got confused and mixed up along the line. He's actually said, I'm fighting to clear my name, but it's a long, hard road. I can fully understand and sympathise with how Stefan Kisco must have felt during his 16 year fight. So again, you've got that, that arrogance and a conceitedness there that he is right. Everyone else is wrong, despite a weight of evidence proving his guilt.
0: So from his arrest, then we we go to the court case. Apart from obviously the DNA evidence, what other evidence was submitted in court?
1: There was a new witness. Well, I say new. It was a witness who had been there all along, but it was another one that the police had kind of suppressed because it didn't fit in with the line of thinking at the time leslie had been seen sitting in a car on the Turfle estate which was identical to the one that castri would have been driving at the time that really is the only other piece of evidence against castri
0: so in that case you're talking about you then on to character witnesses
1: yes it's the only other thing then is you've got his history of, of of sexual offending and the dna evidence The DNA evidence, obviously, is the most persuasive thing there. he went not guilty and the jury were perhaps a little bit persuaded by his arguments and no doubt persuaded by the fact that one man had spent 16 years in prison already for this murder and hadn't done it. Because when the jury retired, they took 11 hours and 38 minutes to deliberate and they could only come to a majority verdict of 10 to 2. So obviously the, the jury were split as well, and the jury were, were maybe perhaps unwilling to sentence a man to a crime where already the evidence had been tampered with in, in the previous investigation.
0: Being in court, this is the first time that both families come face to face with each other. Are they normally kept separate during a court case in case of any issues? And were there any issues?
1: Nowadays, you would you would have nowadays you would have victim liaison officers who would try and ensure that there was a degree of separation between parties. Back then, even though we're only talking 20 years ago, it was different. The families did meet. The Castri family were incredibly worried about meeting the seeds, but bizarrely enough, they found that they were very forgiving and very almost welcoming of the Castries. Beverly. Castree has talked quite movingly about when it was all over and Ronald had been found guilty. Leslie's sister took Beverly to one side and said to her, when you leave court, you leave court with your head held high because you did nothing wrong. Because it became clear to the Maltese throughout the trial that Beverly Castree and the children of Ronald Castree were as much victims as they were because of the domestic violence and the abuse he had put the, his family through and that they had no idea of Castry's terrible secret. Nick Castry became friends with one of Leslie's sisters and he was, in fact, invited to the planting of a tree in Leslie's name. So the, there was a friendly relationship that formed there between some of the Molseed family and some of the Castry family, which I think is, is quite a, a beautiful thing really to happen in the midst of such sorrow and such despair. The fact that, mm. the you know forgiveness even if it isn't needed where some people might feel animosity towards the family of that man it was freely and openly given and and, and a f- tentative friendship formed
0: you kind of got to look at it that ronald castry hasn't just destroyed the lives of leslie's family he's destroyed the lives of his own family and of course stephen kitch goes this case has been uh, something which has been built on lies which has completely destroyed these these mm-hmm. families
1: well it, yeah i mean it it destroyed the marriage of April Malteseed and, and Danny Mulseed Danny mulseed blamed himself for some way for his stepdaughter's death. He, he kind of said that if he hadn't have been playing darts in the pub, maybe he might have gone to the shop instead of Leslie and Leslie would still be here. He carried that guilt with him. He, he turned to alcohol and he effectively drank himself to death.
0: How about the rest of Leslie's family? Because I know uh, Leslie's dad was obviously separated, uh, Fred uh, Anderson.
1: Mm-hmm. Um Well, they're all still alive, although great old age. They've been incredibly brave throughout all of this. They fought to get justice for their daughter. And despite everything, they saw it. April Mulsied, as I said before, didn't believe that she'd see justice for her daughter. And she has. And she was incredibly grateful of that. She was incredibly thankful of the police, despite the mistakes that had been made. The rest of the family are the very strong characters they are very, obviously, they're, they're damning of the police where they need to be, but they're very thankful that they saw it to a conclusion. As I said, they've been very open, friendly, welcoming to the Castri family, and they've given them support. So it's a it testament to the character of the family that they can be like that after all the hardship and all the corruption and mishandling of the case that they had to go through.
0: Two people we've not really mentioned through this episode is uh, Detective Max McLean and uh, Detective Sergeant Veronica Hepworth. Because mm. they op- reopened the cold case, Leslie's family's liaison. But they had an uphill
1: struggles to try
0: and regain
1: trust. They did. And quite right, I would say, after what had happened. But they did... We gain that trust and even though the cold case review that they had didn't proceed the way they would have liked to they did in a way like the previous investigation they got hooked up on this dead-end investigation whereby they thought it was somebody who ultimately wasn't the killer they did the level best and ultimately dna brought the killer to their door unlike other cases where we've seen it's been good old-fashioned copper in this case they looked out and they were able to get the killer through luck But what I will say is those detectives were incredibly dedicated. There was a book written by the superintendent about the Leslie Maltese case in the years before Castry was arrested. And he, he wrote that book mainly to try and keep the case in the public eye because he wanted it to be solved. And he hoped that by writing this book, evidence might come forward that would prove the case against his preferred suspect at the time. Now, obviously, that didn't happen. The book is now long, long out of print. I can't even remember what it's called off the top of my head. I'll get it out my bookshelf and I'll, I'll tweet a link to it because it is a fantastic book which gives a great deal of detail about the investigation and the cold case review
0: mentioned about books i know that uh nick castry's written a book recently over being the son of a killer Mm. i suppose that gives quite an interesting insight of the guilt that he feels as as ronald castry's son but also at the same time trying to understand how his life's been affected and how Mm. he can move on
1: yes you know he's got a very complex relationship with his father When he grew up, he couldn't understand why his elder brother seemed to get brunt of the beatings from his father. And yet his mother didn't seem to show him as much love. And it was this conflicting sense of confusion within Nick Castry. What we now know was the reason behind that. His elder brother, Justin, was only his half-brother. Beverly Castry had had an affair in the months leading up to Leslie's murder. And two days before Leslie's murder, she'd given birth to a child that wasn't Ronald Castries. And Ronald Castri took a lot of his anger out on that child. Whereas Beverly Castri couldn't really bring herself to love Nick and his brother because they were Ronald Castries four biological children and they reminded her of him and his his abuse. So there, there was this, this unhealthy feeling in the family home. Nevertheless, Nick loved his mum and as soon as he was able, he rented a house secretly behind his dad's back and he snuck Beverly Castry out of the family home while Ronald Castree was at his comic book store and they set up home secretly and they got away with that for many months before Ronald found out where they were but by that point Beverly had escaped she had support structures in place and she had started their divorce proceedings and that's how the marriage ended it was because of her son Nick despite everything he'd been through both the coldness from his mother and the abuse from his father Still loving his mother and doing what he, ever he could to try and save her from the brutality that Ronald Castry posed.
0: One more thing we've got to mention is the detectives of the original case
1: mm. uh,
0: who suppressed evidence and wrongly arrested Stephen Kitchow. Mm. What happens to them?
1: Nothing, effectively. Uh, the CPS attempted to prosecute them. That was back in, I think, 2004 off the top of my head when they got to the magistrates court the magistrates threw the case out stating it wasn't in the public interest to prosecute the two men after such a long period of time as I've said before in the previous episode I, I strongly disagree with that decision I think those two men should have spent their last days in in custody both men are now passed away uh, Dick Holland passed away a few years later of liver cancer and uh, I believe Outeridge died a few years later again. So both men have now passed away and have gone to meet the ultimate form of justice, I suppose you could say.
0: Okay, Lloyd, thank you very much. Before we go, would you like to summarise this case in your own words?
1: It's a shocking, disgusting stain on the criminal justice system. How I would like to, to end it is by talking about Stefan Kisko in a way. As we discussed in the, the last episode, Charlotte Kisko died just four months after her son. But before she died, she went to Campbell Malone, who was the human rights lawyer who finally proved that her son was innocent. She made Campbell Malone promise that he would never let Stefan's name fade from the public's imagination. And that she would never let the public forget how the police had so callously and vindictively set her son up. We are talking, remember, about a man who had severe learning difficulties. And Campbell Malone made that promise that he would do his best to make sure nobody ever forgot Stefan Nobody ever forgot the miscarriage of justice and what that represented. And maybe I'd like to end by talking about when Stefan first came out of prison, he was asked what he'd like to do with his life now that he was free. And he replied he'd like to get married, go on holiday and enjoy my life as much as I can. And we all know, tragically, he never got the opportunity to because he died just a few short months later. And they were opportunities which were stolen from him by Dick Holland and Ronald Outeridge. And I just like the listeners to remember Stefan Kisko, remember Leslie, Two victims of Ronald Castry.
0: Well, thank you very much. So that is it. And that's the end of our investigation discussion. Before we go, Lloydy, uh
1: any ideas what we should look into next? I was thinking of doing a case, which is uh, quite close to home to us. Uh, the case of Sarah Williams.
0: Ah, so literally close to home. That's going to be an interesting one.
1: Mm-hmm. it's a a local case in in more ways than one
0: okay how come you want to have a look at this case
1: well two reasons one of our listeners direct messaged me which is a way that you can contact me and asked us to, to discuss the case and also I also know that you've got a personal interest in this case as well and that you brought it up on our sister podcast the Pub Politics podcast why not uh, Delve a little bit deeper into that that case. Can't
0: wait until that. You can go and listen to our sister podcast, which is the Pub Politics podcast. And it was the Criminologically Speaking episode, if I remember.
1: Yeah, back in series one,
0: series two. Yeah, it was. It was quite a few years ago from memory. Right, so that's it for this week. That has been the Murder Tales podcast. Uh, If you have any questions or any queries, please get in contact with us by going to our Twitter page, which is at Pod. Or you can contact Lloydy directly by going to HNLloyd1. And of course, if you have enjoyed the podcast, go to wherever you listen to your podcast on iTunes, Spotify or Anchor and click subscribe to make sure that you don't miss out on the le- next episode. And while you're there, why don't you leave us a five-star review as well. Lloydie, if somebody wants to find out more information about the cases that we've discussed so far in the series how can they do that
1: go along to amazon look for murder tales by h.n lloyd uh, and there's a series of books there in ebook and paperback and hardback
0: so until next time i've been chris Britton and he's been h.n lloyd even in all If you enjoyed this show please go onto itunes and leave us a lovely five-star review and even better click on that subscribe button so you don't miss any future episodes or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts the mother tales podcast is based around the criminal history books by h.n lloyd if you'd like to get your hands onto them you can click on the amazon link on our twitter page this show was presented edited and produced by chris britton who's created written and co-presented by the author h.n lloyd our theme was new world order by neil roberts music the mother tales podcast is part of the p podcasting network you can check out our other shows such as the pub politics podcast or even the tragical history tour all you have to do is go and search on your favorite podcast provider